2: I do find myself encouraged by younger church pastors and, and planters because they tell me that they want their churches to be Jeremiah 29, 7 churches. It's the text where God calls his people who are in exile in Babylon to pray for and seek the peace and prosperity, the shalom of Babylon. That charge by God may have sounded a bit strange to the Israelites, Uh, given that God was asking them to work for the good of their pagan neighbors who were their enemies. But really, the whole Old Testament is filled with this theme of God calling his people to be his hands and feet in the world, to honor and glorify him by pursuing shalom.
1: Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons here on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot with Gabe, and if you're a regular listener to Q Ideas, you hopefully know that Gabe and his team seek to apply a redemptive worldview, not just thinking of the redemption of souls, as key as that is, but also applying that redemptive worldview holistically to how we live our lives, how we engage in the world around us. If that still sounds unusual, Gabe, today we want to get really foundational.
0: The ideas that we talk about every year, whether it's at our events, it's this podcast, it's the books I've written over the years, it's the resources that are coming out of here, maybe it's even the people that we platform that you hear from at Q Ideas, they're operating from a certain view of the world as Christians. Now, not everyone's a Christian that participates on the Q stage. Sometimes we'll have experts in that aren't Christians, but they're an expert on a category that we believe it's important for Christians to understand. And we've always been committed to bringing to bear those ideas and that information so that we as Christians continue to get smarter, more thoughtful, more aware, more educated and curious about the world around us and how to engage with it. But today you're going to hear a very specific foundational set of ideas from Amy Sherman about what it means to think Christianly about our role in the world. And it's so good. This is the kind of thing, if if I had a teenager, which I do, I would make them listen to it. If I was a teacher, I would want all the kids in the class to listen and have a conversation about this. This is one of the big missions of our organization. When we launched 16 years ago in 2007 with the first Q Conference— it was, how do we over time, and we're almost two decades into this, how do we reshape the worldview so that Christians growing up don't just think the only role they have in the world to serve God, to glorify God with their life and their talent, is to be a missionary or a pastor, and that they would start to see that, no, there's every industry is crying out for faithfulness, for flourishing, and that could be in the medical field, and science, it could be in government, politics, education, media, entertainment, coding. I mean, it could be any single area. And that's what we try to do every year is bring you more and more stories of people who are living out their calling faithfully in multiple types of industries and scenarios, but they're bringing to bear a lot of light into those spaces. They're cultivating goodness. They're a part of, of living lives that not only are flourishing for them, but for everyone around them.
1: Yeah, and as you mentioned, Gabe, redemptively working for human flourishing has been one of the key themes here at Q since the start. And one of the key people who has and continues to work with Q in this regard is economist Brian Fickert from the Charmer Center at Covenant College. Now, you would think that as an economist, he'd want to have societies become more like America or other first world nations. After all, we're, we're flourishing, right? Well, let's go back to a talk from the Q conference in 2014 where Brian challenges that line of thinking.
3: The implicit goal in most poverty alleviation efforts is that the goal is to make them just like us. The goal is to make Bangladesh like America. And what's wrong with that? Well, consider this. At the same time that there's been unprecedented economic growth in the post-World War II era, we have also experienced an explosion of mental illness in the United States. And this explosion of mental illness cannot be attributed simply to greater response rate, greater reporting rates. It can't be attributed simply to social media because the explosion of mental illness precedes both of those things. Let me give you just one example. Between 1950 and 1999, the rate of suicide amongst people under the age of 24 in the United States increased by 137%. Why? In June 2002, a conference was held at Dartmouth Medical School in which the leading scientists, the leading medical professionals were brought together to try to determine what was it that was causing the explosion of mental illness in America. And what these scientists decided was the following, this is recorded in their, in their study, hardwired to connect. What these scientists said is the following, human beings are fundamentally wired for relationship, And that the youth in America are experiencing a breakdown in two primary relationships. One of those relationships is with other people, primarily adults. And the second broken relationship is with God himself. Secular scientists saying that a breakdown in those two relationships are contributing to mental illness. I would submit to you folks that Western civilization is fundamentally not working. We have greater material consumption than any people on the face of the planet throughout all of human history, and yet we are increasingly miserable. We need a biblical understanding of what success is, and we need a biblical understanding of how to get there. In other words, we need a biblical theory of change. Now, to understand human beings, what human flourishing looks like, we've got to start off with the creator of those human beings. I'm very indebted to a number of Trinitarian scholars, uh, particularly a gentleman named Fred Sanders, who's written a marvelous book called The Deep Things of God. And he starts off his book by talking about uh, the happy land of the Trinity. The idea being here that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost exist in perfect relationship with one another, that God is inherently a relational being, and that there's perfect unity, and perfect happiness in the happy land of the Trinity. And then what God does is decide to make human beings in his image. And there's at least two dimensions of being made in the image of God. The first is the substantive dimension, what we consist of, what our components are as human beings. The Bible seems to indicate that human beings are about a mind, a heart, a will or our actions, and then our bodies. This is the substance of which we are composed. But the second dimension of image-bearing is the relational dimension, that we are wired for relationship with God, with, our, with self, with others, and with the rest of creation. And the idea is that when we use our entire substance to relate properly to God, self, others, and the rest of creation— that we experience what it means to be human. This is what success looks like. This is what the goal is. This is what the good life is. Now, no analogy is perfect, but I have found it helpful to try to picture this as a tire. The hub of the tire is our substance. And when we use our substance, our, our mind, our heart, our hands, and our bodies to relate properly to God's self, others, and the rest of creation. When the hub and the spokes are properly aligned, the tire is well-functioning. It's well-formed. Human flourishing is to be a well-formed tire. Now, of course, sin messes the story up. Now, if you're like me, you were taught that what sin creates for you is a legal problem, that you are guilty before a righteous God, and that is true. All have sinned, and the wages of sin are death. We have a legal problem. But sin is not just a legal problem. It's a human essence problem. It's a human flourishing problem.
1: Well, again, that was Brian Fickert of the Chalmers Center and a portion of a talk from the Q Stage in 2014, helping us better understand the biblical basis for human flourishing and the roadblocks to it. Now, if you'd like to hear the full talk, it is on the Q Media platform. If you're not a subscriber, just go to Qideas.org and request a free 30 day trial of the Q Media platform. Check this and other great talks out. Now, Gabe, what Brian said, I think, does a great job in setting up what we'll hear next. This comes from this past spring's Culture Summit you hosted in Nashville. This audio is from one of the breakout sessions that encouraged those who attended to be agents of flourishing. And the speaker is Amy Sherman. Tell us about her.
0: So Amy Sherman, she has a PhD and directs the Sagamore Institute Center on Faith and Communities. But she's been around our QIDs community for a long time, giving multiple talks. And today you're going to get to hear from her. She's the author of Kingdom Calling, but her most recent book that I want to commend to you is her book Agents of Flourishing: Pursuing Shalom in Every Corner of Society. And you're going to hear a bit of that in this next 15 minutes. You're going to get to hear her talk about some of the basis of this, but you're going to find what does it mean to think biblically and christianly about your role in the world. So again, this is the kind of podcast I would share with others. Maybe they've never heard of Q Ideas and you want to introduce them to who we are. Share this podcast. It's going to help shape and frame the way in which we see the world and the way in which we feel called to help other Christians, pastors, leaders, entrepreneurs, business leaders to also view and engage with the world. Let's listen and know.
2: My name is Amy Sherman, and I have a new book out called Agents of Flourishing, Pursuing Shalom in Every Corner of Society. This book is about how we as believers, both individually and corporately, can be agents of shalom, or people of peace, who contribute to the flourishing of their communities. On the one hand, it's a very positive book because it tells a lot of stories about what Christians in the past And some churches today uh, are doing in terms of bringing greater shalom into their communities. I hope the book will be a big encouragement to believers for just reminding us all of the the rich legacy of the Christian church and the enormous contributions uh, it has made over the centuries to human flourishing. I especially want young Christians who feel disillusioned with the church or who feel that the church is irrelevant or that. It is tone deaf to the issues of the day. I want I want young Christians to be encouraged by the contemporary stories that I tell about how different churches are addressing educational iniquities, or advancing restorative justice, pursuing racial reconciliation in their communities, seeking to promote the arts and to advance creation care. So on the one hand, it's a it's a positive. Book with lots of fun stories. On the other hand, it does voice a lament, which is simply that these positive stories I tell about churches today are unfortunately not the norm. These churches are kind of outliers. I desperately wish that that wasn't the case, but it is the case that these churches really are not the norm. I have to honestly report that. In short, Despite the fact that there are hundreds of congregations, maybe thousands even out there, who have the capacity to do the kinds of things that I showcase in the book, they're simply not doing them. We have in the churches of America an enormous amount of latent capital, financial capital, human capital, social capital that has not been activated for the common good. I do find myself encouraged by younger church pastors and and planters uh, because they tell me that they want their churches to be Jeremiah 29, 7 churches. That text, of course, is familiar to, to many of us. It's the text where God calls his people who are in exile in Babylon to pray for and seek the peace and prosperity, the shalom of Babylon that charge by God may have sounded a bit strange to the Israelites, uh, given that God was asking them to work for the good of their pagan neighbors who were their enemies. But really, the whole Old Testament is filled with this theme of God calling his people to be his hands and feet in the world, to honor and glorify him by pursuing shalom in every corner of society, to, to glorify God by being salt and light in the world, loving their neighbors comprehensively, pursuing spiritual, relational, economic, physical, mental shalom for themselves and for their neighbors. So I love it when I hear these young pastors saying, I wanna be a, we wanna be a Jeremiah 29, 7 church. But of course, that does beg an important question which is, well, what does a flourishing community actually look like? How should we be thinking about how to advance the shalom, the peace and prosperity of our communities? Well, personally, I have found a framework from the Thriving Cities group called the Human Ecology Framework to be a really helpful tool when it comes to answering that question. This framework argues that in order for a community to be truly flourishing, it needs to be strong in six realms or domains of society. And the Thriving Cities group calls these six domains community endowments. And they are the good, the true, the beautiful, the just and well-ordered, the prosperous and the sustainable, the good, the realm of social mores and ethics. The true, the realm of human knowledge and learning. The beautiful, the realm of creativity and aesthetics and design. The just and well ordered, the realm of civic life and politics. The realm of the prosperous, economic life and economic institutions. And the realm of the sustainable, the realm of human and natural health. Flourishing in each of these community endowments is necessary if a community as a whole is truly to thrive. As I studied what the scriptures had to say about human and community flourishing, I saw an enormous amount of resonance between what the Bible has to say about flourishing and this framework's conception of flourishing in these six domains. I mean, think about it for a minute. God obviously cares about work. He he called us. Uh, into work and, and creates work, so he cares about economic life. God made us creative beings like Himself, and gave us various senses. He cares about the realm of the beautiful and the aesthetic life. God made us intellectual beings and gave us curiosity. He cares about the realm of the true, the realm of of knowledge and learning. And God is a God of justice who wants societies to be ordered in such a way that human dignity is preserved. He obviously cares about the realm of the the just and well-ordered. Throughout the church's history, Christians and coalitions of Christians and and congregations have been both thought leaders and pioneering implementers in each of these six domains of society. Let's think about, for example, the, the community endowment of the good, this notion of advancing ethical convictions and and practices that strengthen the fabric of a a community. Well, Christianity has among its various convictions the doctrine of Imago Dei, the idea that every single human person on the planet, that every single person in a community is made in the image of God and possesses inherent dignity and, and unique talents, and that never should society oppress or abrogate that human dignity in each person. So this was a message that the early church proclaimed in the midst of the Roman Empire. And the culture of the day denied this fundamental truth. Uh, In the Roman Empire, really, it was only Roman male citizens who had inherent dignity and, and, and human rights. Everybody else was a second or a third or a tenth class citizen or even not a citizen at all. For example, uh, women had very few rights. Widows were not allowed to own property. Young girls could be forced into marriage. People that broke the Roman law would have their faces branded the way that we would brand an animal to mark them as criminals. So in, in all those practices, we see that the Roman Empire wasn't valuing the dignity of the human person. And yet here was the Christian church proclaiming loudly and clearly that message, and not just giving voice to it, but incarnating it, embodying it, so that widows were given places of honor in the congregation. The church fathers railed against the gladiatorial games because of the way that they demeaned human personhood and human dignity. Uh, They also lobbied against the practice of, of face branding, and individual Christians, because of the Imago Dei, really valued children, And as a result, they adopted unwanted Roman children and they uh, started orphanages for abandoned children. So, those are just some thoughts of how Christians have contributed to the realm of the good. Let's think about the sustainable, the realm of human and environmental health. You know, I think a lot of young Christians today don't appreciate uh, really how the church has been a strong contributor to this particular community endowment. The church has contributed really important foundational ideas, the idea of God's ownership over all things, the notion of the intrinsic value of the creation, the concept of general revelation by which we say that the Lord's glory is infused in the the creation that that he has made. And, And these ideas have positively influenced humankind's interaction with the natural environment. And again, these convictions gave rise to specific actions and practices. And so, for example, we see the medieval monks being very intentional about creation care and and the way that they would pursue farming and how they really were environmental conservationists. Here in our country in the 17th century, the Puritans, out out of their Christian convictions, set aside Woodlands and tried to preserve soil for future generations, and when they designed a town, they would have green, common spaces for everyone to enjoy and if If time permitted, I could tell you many, many more stories of how the church and how again individual believers or groups in past centuries have strengthened these various realms and, and I think that recalling that rich legacy of how the church has contributed. To the betterment of human society is a really important exercise, particularly at this time when we feel as Christians uh, in in modern day America a a sense of 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 exile. There's this kind of vibe around that that says, "Well, the church really hasn't ever done anything good." You know, it was just the Crusades, and there's been a lot of sexual abuse scandals. And you know, of course, it's absolutely true and. Absolutely depressing that the church has indeed made many mistakes, many grave errors, has committed many terrible sins. It's certainly the case that we have toxic churches and we have hypocritical Christians. But those have never been the whole story of Christianity and culture. And in fact, I would argue that the contributions to human flourishing and to the good and to justice made by Christians over time have far outweighed the bad and the mistakes that the Christian church certainly has has done. But the the main reason that we should reflect on this legacy is not to just sort of make us feel better when the church is being beaten up by, by criticism. The main reason we should think about this legacy of how the church has contributed to human flourishing and community flourishing is because it reminds us of what we are here for. It reminds us of God's mission to extend his kingdom of shalom into every corner of our societies and his call for us to join him in that mission of shalom. And I think this human ecology framework can help us live into this call of Jeremiah 29.7 by giving us some, some handholds for that work of community flourishing. It reminds us of the comprehensiveness and the diversity of the labors before us. And I think it can be a helpful guide to us as individuals and as congregations as we think about sort of where to invest our, our efforts. For example, if a if a congregation is particularly populated um, by a lot of people who work in the healthcare field, that may be a clue that God wants that congregation to especially focus its efforts in community ministry in the realm of the sustainable. Or if the church is filled with educators, that its best and most strategic contribution might be something in the realm of the true. Well, King Jesus has indeed called us to be people of peace, agents of flourishing, uh, joining him in this mission of extending shalom into every corner of society. And importantly, that call is not supplemental. It is not incidental. It is central to our faith. It is central to the church's mission and to her identity. And I believe that God has placed into our hands what we need for living into that mission. But those assets cannot be allowed to sit dormant. They have to be activated, unleashed and then intentionally and strategically deployed across these realms of the good, the true, the beautiful, the just, the sustainable, and and the prosperous. And my hope is that you listening to this will be advocates and champions of that and that you will thoughtfully consider how your own particular uh, assets and the the unique assets of your congregation can be strategically and effectively uh, deployed for the peace and prosperity of your community.
1: Oh, that was so good. Well, again, thanks for spending time with us this week on Q Ideas. That talk was from Amy Sherman of the Sagamore Institute, talking about being people of peace, of shalom, and pursuing shalom in every corner of our society. Gabe, she really only scratched the surface of what she talks about in her new book, Agents of Flourishing.
0: And she has so many great ideas to share. And her book is the best way for you to, if you enjoyed what you just heard, to go to the next steps of, of depth. To you'll, you'll be underlining all day because there's so many great nuggets of wisdom. We encourage you get the book agents of flourishing and enjoy not only the learning you had today, but also going a little bit deeper because we believe that these types of ideas will establish you and your way of seeing the world. As we enter into a season where things get more confusing, you're going to need a holy imagination. You're going to need to have a vision for why you are where you are when things get difficult, when you start to get pressed I think it's understanding some of these biblical ideas that are going to give you the strength to continue to move forward.
1: Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com.